Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I was never thinking about running for office, and like so many women, the only reason why I began to think about it is because I was asked. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Gotta get paid, though. Gotta get paid. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Have you ever even actually killed anybody? And need to talk about more. This feels better than actually having sex yourself. I'm Anna Sale. Jennifer Granholm was the governor of Michigan from 2003 to 2011. She was the first woman to hold the highest office in her state. But she was raised in California, where I talked to her in our studio. Her parents moved the family here from Canada. They'd met as bank tellers, but after they immigrated, her mother stayed at home with the kids, while her dad went on to become a bank president. However, my mother, who's a deep feminist... You know, she wanted me to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. Don't let those guys get you down. That was what she would say on one side. And on the other side, she would say, okay, if you're in a competition with a boy, let the boy win. Really? <laughs> yeah. However, I won any of my races with that advice. I will never <laughs> know. But she's, you know, wanted her daughter to not have to, like her, be trapped in a generation. Trapped in a generation. That's what I wanted to talk to Jennifer Granholm about. What it was like to be a woman candidate and top elected official in her generation. She rose through the political ranks in the 90s and early 2000s, when more women were running and winning than ever. But she was also told it was best not to mention she was a woman. Growing up, she never imagined she'd ever run for office. She was interested in politics. She went door-to-door for Gerald Ford in high school. But her first time competing for a title was in a very different kind of venue. I'm interested in the time in your teenage years when you got involved in beauty patterns. Ah! Oh, my God, do I have to leave the room? That's so horrible. So horrible. Well, I think... 
obviously you it's learned. mortifying well i, I don't wanna... ever do it get rid of them all is that how you feel about <laughs> totally, it now? totally at the time what what drew you to them um i you know it was i was in high school and it was a um you know a, just a conversation with a couple of my girlfriends oh we should do this we should do this that'd be hilarious and then once we're you're in, you're kind of you're you're in, and it was just anyway. It's really not a part of my life that I am proud of. I'm actually totally grossed out by it personally. Now that being said, I do know I understand that in some areas of the country, this is where women find their identity, and I don't want to disparage anybody who makes other choices. But for me, ah, it was horrible. But pageants did give her a taste for being on stage. After high school, she moved to Los Angeles, looking to start an acting career. This was during the 70s now, right? So this was during the time of bimbos and Three's Company and all of that. And I had been sent out on auditions and that casting couch thing where was real. Really? I mean, I didn't do it, but but it was real in the sense that I went on interviews where people would say, hey, I've got 50 girls outside lined up who are willing to do A, B, or C. Why should I give this part to you if you won't play the game? So that actually happened to you, direct conversations about oh, yeah, suggestions yeah. about what you should you do know, sexually 70s, to get a role. It was wild. It was wild. I was so naive, so naive. I completely didn't realize that that was what was going on. I mean, I find it interesting that you talk about that time as um, – with embarrassment, and it's also a time when you were uh, made to feel small and made to feel like you were um, expendable and that you needed to put out. So That you're good for one thing. Yeah. You know, or, yeah, it's, it was really, it was a terrible experience. Do you feel like when you think about the decision to leave L.A. and go to UC Berkeley and get your college degree, was that a— a time of rethinking the yes. kind of woman you wanted oh, to be totally, in the world. Totally. I was like, I was so mad about the experience in LA that I basically said to myself, well, I'm going to go to the, because I felt like people were not paying attention to my mind at all. I was reading like philosophy books and stuff like that. I was like totally interested in ideas. And when all of this, you know, stupid stuff was happening in Los Angeles, and I was so mad about it. I said, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go to the best university I can get into. I'm going to get the best grades possible. I'm going to go to law school, and I'll show them. They'll remember me one day. <laughs> um, so, and so was, here was, you are. And here, right, whatever, here I am. But, but I do know that that negative experience definitely propelled me in a different direction. Jennifer was the first in her family to get a college degree, and she did well and went straight on to Harvard Law School in 1984. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan was a year ahead of her. I could not believe how many women I met who wanted to be president. I huh. never met anybody, any women, who had that kind of ambition. I was like, wow, that is amazing how fantastic to be in this dorm full of of estrogen power. It was awesome. But even back then, you could see people like Elena Kagan's, you know, 
formulating where they were going to go to make an impact in some way. So it was very cool to see women in those kinds of nascent, powerful positions. And how did you orient yourself into those conversations? Did it sound like, whoa, those women are on a different path? Did it sound like, this is... This is something I've never considered for myself. Well, it was more that I had not met. I mean, maybe because I was like a, a, a public school kid and all, and there was a lot of women at, at Harvard who had been groomed in a way that I had not been groomed myself. Um, and so I was just so surprised and, in, you know, positively surprised by the fact that there was unfettered ambition on the part of women. And that made Jennifer more ambitious. In her first year at law school, she ran her first campaign to be editor of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review. That's also when she met a fellow law student named Dan Mulhern, the man who would become her husband. Well, we met actually at Counter M of People's Express Airlines. The People's Express Airlines was the sort of precursor to Southwest where you didn't get a seat or whatever, your cheap student outline. And it was they had called a, People's Express? People's Express. <laughs> it was called People's Express. And you paid like 50 bucks and gave you a ticket wherever. And so all the, you know, all, we all went on the cheap. That's where we met. <laughs> we were both headed back to Harvard from spring break. <laughs> and And what was it like? For you, as someone who was formulating the kind of career you wanted to have, you're on this pathway of elite achievement at Harvard Law School and falling in love. Did did those feel intention at all for you at that time in your life? Yeah, I'm sure that uh, my husband would definitely say that, too. Um, because, I mean, so first of all, I mean, this is what he would say. He would say, okay, she was editor-in-chief of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review, and he had to find a way in to all of that, including studying. So my husband is this great um, romantic, and so he was very um, shrewd about how he got me to— because at first I was not interested. I was focused on the things that I was working on, you know, but he pressed flowers and wax paper and put them in my mailbox, or he wrote poetry and put it in there, and he would, uh, you know, he would cook— for I mean, he wore me down, basically, is what it was. And it, and it turns out, such a brilliant move on my part, one of the best moves ever, was to fall for a man who is my um, personality opposite. Huh. Uh, meaning that if you looked at how he is, his orientations in terms of life and how I am, and you were looking for somebody, for example, to care for your children, you would pick him in a minute. I make lists. I got to be somewhere on time. Come on, come on, come on, come on. We got to do this. That's just not him. So I feel so fortunate to marry somebody like that because ultimately I would not have been able to be governor if I did not have a partner who was willing to take the lane of being primarily responsible for the children. And when you talked, when you were deciding to marry, what was the way you thought your lives would <laughs> so go funny along next that. to each other? So we're Catholic, and we were prepared for marriage by a Catholic priest, and he would ask all of the usual questions, et cetera. And Dan, my husband, who's from Michigan, now I was from California, right? So he's from Michigan, and um, he wanted to go, when he was growing up, he wanted to be either pope or president. 
That was his ambition. You know, he was the debate champion. He went to Yale as an undergrad. Believe me, being the first gentleman of Michigan was not high on his list <laughs> of, of things to be. So I thought I would be going to Michigan. We were going to move to Michigan because that was where I could do work in civil rights, et cetera. And, um, and that I'd be supportive of him, of course. If he wanted to run, I would happily help him out. So the priest says to us, what if the party comes to Jennifer instead and asks her to run? And Dan said, well, if she wanted to do that, I would support her 100%. Coming up, Jennifer Granholm talks about what happened when Democratic Party officials in Michigan did approach her about running for office when her youngest kid was just 10 months old. Yeah, I got these three kids. They're young. No, there's no way. And I come home and I tell Dan this has happened. He said, are you kidding me? The door only opens once. You got to go through it. I got the kids. This is great. This episode is a collaboration with the podcast, The United States of Anxiety, from my colleagues at WNYC Studios. Their latest season is all about gender and power in American politics. I especially loved their very timely episode this season called We've Been Here Before. It's about Anita Hill's testimony during Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings in 1991. Back then, there were only two women in the U.S. Senate. Former Maryland Senator Barbara Mikulski was one of them. First of all, every podium, when you go to speak on the floor, was built for some guy who was five foot ten or six foot two. Neither she nor her one female Senate colleague were on the Senate Judiciary Committee that questioned Anita Hill. It was very clear that there had to be more women and that we needed to be on not only judiciary, we needed to be on every committee. Someone who was on the Judiciary Committee questioning Anita Hill was Al Simpson, a former Republican senator from Wyoming. I spoke with him and his wife, Anne in one of the very first Death, Sex, and Money episodes. And they told me about the private conversations they had around that time. I just couldn't believe the way Al was operating. And uh, I did tell him, you know, you all sound terrible. You sound like a bunch of male chauvinist pigs. She said, I don't know what you're doing today, but for God's sake, you look really nasty. You look like a beast. There's a link to that episode on our website at deathsexmoney.org, and you can find the entire season of the United States of Anxiety at wnyc.org anxiety. On the next episode, author and internet phenom John Green. He wrote the hugely successful young adult novel, The Fault in Our Stars. And as his career soared, his mental health suffered. I couldn't describe it to anyone. And so when I was in that mental anguish, that like intense psychic pain, it felt uh, very isolating and alone because I was the only person who had that pain. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. 
but they were healthy. Whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Jennifer Granholm finished at Harvard Law School, she moved to Michigan where she clerked for a judge, worked for the U.S. attorney, and eventually ran the law office for the county Detroit is in, both prosecuting and defending cases. Then, when she was in her mid-30s, the party approached her. That meant two guys who were longtime Democratic leaders asked her to run for attorney general of Michigan. A woman had never held that office. You know, when you run for office as a woman, this is what I was told. This is different now, I think. But when I was first running for office... One, I, I had to cut my hair. Uh, into a short. To short, super short, and which I kind of like anyway, but but it was It clear. was the instruction. It was right. You had to cut your hair. I actually asked my hairstylist, because I was young when I first ran. Um, I was in my 30s, and so I was said— 37, you, right? Right. Can you, can you put some gray streaks in? And at the time, they didn't have product that was good for that because it would make me look like I had blue hair, which would really be outre. You know, I can't do that. Um, so, you know, you, you have to look completely asexual. And you cannot have people look at you. And the first thing they think about is how you are shaped, what you are wearing, you have to be as neutral as possible so that people will pay attention to the words that are coming out of your out of your mouth. There is no way you should be showing any any boobs, any uh, you can't even you shouldn't be showing your toes. You know, you now you that just, you're out of office, your toes now, can show. I were you here open toes and I'm sandals. Got free toes. <laughs> free those toes. Who told you to cut your hair? Um 
it, uh, you know, you have consultants, right, all around you who who are. And actually, I wanted to because I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to. I wanted to look tough. I didn't want to be distracting. You know, if I had long blonde hair, I would be. You know, you don't want the bimbo thing applied to you at all. You know, so I wanted to do it as well. But they, you know, there's a whole series of things that you do when you run for office. Do you remember feeling hemmed in? and resentful at any of the particular instructions? Um, I don't think, I mean, I, in order to feel uh, hemmed in and resentful, I think uh, you had to be more aware than I was. <laughs> I was just learning. Oh, really? Is that how you do it? Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, if I had had more experience in life, perhaps I would have felt uh, resentful. Were you told to emphasize or de-emphasize that you would be the first female attorney general in the Michigan. emphasize It was obvious um, that I was a woman, right? I didn't have to say that. Um, everything you had to de-emphasize. You had to de-emphasize your children. Uh, really? Oh, yeah. People don't because they were nervous. I mean, I had a 10-month-old, right? And so they would want to know, well, what the hell? We're not going to send a woman in there when she's got she's going to be torn and her kids will be at home and who's watching the kids and all of that. So if you looked at any of my literature, you didn't see kids. You know, Did they, you have your husband? Uh, you didn't even really see my husband. It was all about this disembodied creature who was going to fight for you. Because you don't want to remind people of the mess that is a family and all of that. And it would make you look too too um, potentially diverted. Did you have a serious conversation with your husband to say, this is how our family is totally. going to have to operate differently? Oh, yeah. At that initial decision about running for attorney general, this is when Dan stepped up and said, I've got the kids. I've got this lane. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. And that made, that just completely liberated me. And that meant he became in charge of the family calendar, right. sick days, babysitters, right. et cetera. Right. He's not really great at all of that. <laughs> he would say that. He's really great at nurturing their souls. He's not great at the logistics part, but that's okay because I'm really good at that and I'm very efficient at it. But he took care of the most important things, which was their little hearts and them feeling, you know, that their family was there for them. So they did participate with me, like, in parades and stuff. But after a few parades, it, you know, it gets kind of old. And you don't want to drag kids to something they don't want to go to because that's a terrible picture. <laughs> so it's bad enough if you're a mom, if you're a bad mom with a crying baby. Oh, my then. God, right? <laughs> Jennifer won a close race for attorney general in 1998. And within a year, Democratic Party officials were back, talking to her about another campaign. This is when the party comes and says, OK, you are the only statewide elected Democrat. You've got to start thinking about governor. I'm like, no, I love this job. This is such a great job. But eventually, they persuaded me to, to say, yeah, I'm going to run for, for governor. She ran in 2002, and she won. She governed while Michigan's industrial economy was in transition, and then falling apart completely. The worst came during her second term, when the global financial crisis was compounded in Michigan by bankruptcies in the auto industry. Michigan had the highest unemployment rate in the nation during the Great Recession, 
had the greatest loss of manufacturing jobs during this time. Um, we had the greatest outflow of people leaving the state because of the job situation in Michigan. And so it was, you know, you've combination of, of empathy for people and playing tough was what was necessary. I would say to anybody who's deciding whether or not to run for office, timing is really important. And I happen to be governor at, a t- at the worst possible time in Michigan history. Had I known, I might have waited a term or two, but nonetheless, it was, I, I, I say that's kind of smiling, but I, I do think that when your state is in a a crisis like that, your decisions have that much more impact. And so it was a privilege to be governor during a time of huge crisis while it was super, super hard for, obviously, the people of the state and for me, too. I read in the Washington Post as you were leaving office, you you were asked about your approval rating, and you said something like, I hope it's 30. It's it's really low, whatever it is. Yeah. How did you personally deal with the fact that you had governed during a time of huge structural shifts where your personal ability to control what was happening for people in your state was somewhat limited. Somewhat. It's funny because even now, uh, you know, in the governor's race in Michigan today, you would think that I was on the ballot because my image is being morphed into the woman who's running for governor now. Oh, you're like Nancy Pelosi in Michigan. Yeah, exactly. You're someone Republicans exactly. run against. And, you know, I keep saying, really, do you really think a governor is responsible for the global meltdown in the financial sector or for the bankruptcies in the auto industry. Do you really think that's because that would be one powerful governor if that is really true? So, you know, I I say that intellectually, emotionally, I still, you know, I feel I feel uh, sad for me personally, if I can be sorry for myself. Um, I feel I feel sad that I governed at a time when I am seen as being responsible for the high unemployment rate in Michigan, even though I know intellectually, of course, it happened because of the global recession and the auto industry and our overconcentration in in that manufacturing sector, which obviously was 100 years in the making. I imagine some of those meetings with the auto industry were, um, there may, like, there may have been a generational gap between you and some of the people you were meeting with. Mm-hmm, for sure. And that they were primarily men. For sure. Did you feel that? All the time. But not just with the auto industry. With almost everything, right? I mean, with my counterparts in the state legislature, at least uh, in certainly in my first term that was true. You know, with business leaders across Michigan. I mean, I was young. I was a young uh, person, and I felt insecure myself, right? So I, you know, I had to, I picked somebody to be my um, lieutenant governor who was super experienced in the legislative process, which is great. He could handle that side of things. However, I mean, I, I wasn't going to show any of that, right? You had to demonstrate that you were twice as prepared as anybody that you knew it did require me to really study and know every issue backwards and forwards in order to be taken seriously, and um, which I did. Did you have a group of women friends who you could call up at the end of a day where maybe you've had some felt some slights, absorbed them, blew past them, and they just needed to go like, can you believe what happened today? Or yeah. did you see that in that meeting? Or- um, well, here's what I would say. It, it's difficult to find a peer. Um, Inside of the state. But 
the governor, the women governors, you know, who are still like Janet Napolitano or Chris Gregoire, Kathleen Sebelius, Heidi Heidkamp when we were um, AGs together, um, we are still to this moment fiercely tight. You know, we'd have slumber parties when we do the National Governors Association or the National Attorneys General Association so that we could, like, just, you know, vent a little bit and share, uh, you know, share a laugh. So those were my peers, and those are my friends still. Jennifer couldn't run for governor again after two terms. And afterwards, she and her husband left Michigan for California, in part to be near her aging parents. But she's still active in Democratic politics, raising money and advising other candidates. I tell women who are running that that they should go see Wonder Woman twice. The new Wonder Woman. The new Wonder Woman. Because the way she goes about dealing with the curiosities of sexism is as a curiosity. Oh, that's so interesting. But she does not let it stop her from her mission of protecting people. So people want a warrior. They do not want a victim. And so the more you call attention to that, the more people see you as seeing yourself as victimized. And you don't want to be seen as a victim. You want to be their champion. So it's empowering to be able to fight for them while blowing off sexist comments as though it didn't penetrate your armor one bit. I do think about that is so difficult for people running for office to both project strength and fierceness and make sure they're in no way undermining their likability. Yeah. You go, oh, for you always sure. Have to Especially be a for women, you got to be likable, right? That's, you know, men don't have to worry about that so much. Um, but for women, if you're not, unfortunately, people still, you know, if you're not likable, then you're a bitch. And you cannot elect a bitch. And, and I, but I would say, if I'm a bitch on behalf of others, and this is a serious subject, I'm going to claim that. That's Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan. She now teaches public policy at UC Berkeley and is a commentator on CNN. And do check out WNYC's podcast, The United States of Anxiety. This season is all about women in politics. And this week's episode focuses on two women running for office this year, Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams and New Jersey congressional candidate Mikey Sherrill. Subscribe at WNYC.org slash anxiety. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Joanna Solotaroff, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thanks to Jessica Miller and Christopher Johnson for their help on this episode. Jennifer Granholm said that leaving elected office brought mixed feelings, some relief, some grief about no longer being able to affect things in the same way. But one thing she loves is getting to be less careful about showing her opinions. Back in the day, it wouldn't have been perfect for me to express every outrage that I feel, which now I do on on Twitter. And I I love all of that. And even if it's misspelled, you know, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) 
I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 